voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Il dit à nos voyageurs, embrassez vos femmes. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at around 100 pages of works by great American writers using the Library of America collection as my source material. And today, we'll be looking at some more of Jack London's stories. In the previous two episodes, I took a look at the Klondike stories, and there was 12 of them. And uh, for the next two episodes, it'll be 13 stories that are just more assorted but they really fall into a couple groups some are his urban tales his stories about the urban working class some are about the pacific and some are kind of about the west more broadly i think there's one or two about indians but really they're mostly about the pacific and though the working class in places like san francisco and california so um let's just get into these and see what there is to say about them Oh, they're all written between 1905 and 1914. So they, they sort of come after his Klondike stories, which were written really from 1899 until, until 1905, 1906, something like that. And To Build a Fire was in 1909, but that's almost a coda to that series of short stories. Many of these were written during the voyage of the Snark, which was a, a couple year voyage that Jack London took in the Pacific and he a lot he produced a lot during that those voyages it was this time of deep depression so it influenced John Barleycorn but uh, it's during that period he wrote Burn Eden and many of the stories about the Pacific um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in these stories about empire about race some of his most racially sensitive and racially controversial stories are from this period of time but he also talks a lot about class conflict and, and capitalism and the violence of of the system. In fact, he's got a couple stories here about boxing, which gets right to the heart of the matter of violence and capitalism and poverty all coming together in the stories of, of a couple boxers. So anyway, the so first of these stories is All Gold Canyon, published in 1905. And in this story, it's simply about a gold miner who finally strikes it rich after a long period of struggle. Now, it's not in the Yukon, otherwise it probably would have been in that set on the Yukon. It is in like the Southwest, um, I don't know, Arizona or someplace like that. The discovery of gold leads to a, a conflict with a thief, a claim jumper, essentially, who, you know, these would be people who'd follow prospectors and when they find them kill the prospector and then steal their claim essentially the miner though just triumph over the thief killing him and the story ends with the miner praising his great find and the contempt he has with for the claim jumper saying quote just a common man ordinary thief damn him end quote here we have the struggle for wealth as always facilitated by indifference between or facilitating indifference between people in similar social economic situations. Had the claim number one, we could have had a similar statement, right? Just a common man, ordinary prospector, damn him. I mean, it's, it's the indifference goes both ways here. And these are people in very similar situations, probably a poor background, hoping to get rich by going to a gold mining frontier, 
and it just becomes a struggle a struggle for survival rather than cooperating and working together to exploit this claim the situation has it that they have to fight and it's it, there's really no reason for the fighting except that the law seems to or the system seems to suggest that you know the gold mine is an individual activity and of course the culture seems to imply that too and in fact the most successful gold miners were the big corporations that organized labor course they were heavily exploitative and they kept the profits for themselves and didn't share them with the workers but cooperation was the best way to exploit uh, the mining frontier anyways what else to say about this like i said you get some really beautiful descriptions of of this area and the whole process of how he found the gold and how he's shifting through the water and the stones finding gold and this leads him to the direction of where the gold is. It, it's a really good description of this process of panning for gold, if, if you don't know what that entailed. This is a good place to go to get a summary of what that was like. So that's all. Uh, not not the most profound, but a nice little story about you know how people are driven to violence against each other. Uh, and really, it's not necessary, we, we think, as we read it. Next, we have The Apostate, published in 1906. This is an attack on child labor and the human costs of the industrial system on younger workers. So we have a working class kid, and we're, we're introduced to him just as he's waking up. And his family gets him ready to go to work. And then we have him going to his job. I think it's in a textile mill. And we have a description of his work. And the boy is described as just an extension of the machine. Now, he has to work because his, I think because his younger brother, one of his brothers can't and the other one's maybe going to school. So he sacrificed his future sacrifice for, for the family's well-being. Um, and in the end, he abandons the industrial life and he becomes essentially a tramp or a hobo. And he's happy with this. And what it is that bothers him so much is movement. He finally gets sick and tired of moving. You know, he realizes he's just a machine in perpetual motion and he can't do it anymore and he just abandons it. So that's the meaning of the title, the apostate, someone who, who turns their back on their religion, right? And in this character's case, the religion is that of service to the industrial system and being a machine and work and all that. But I want to get to some of the descriptions because they're really powerful. Like here's one. His earlier memories lingered with him. But he had no late memories. All days were alike. Yesterday or last year were the same as a thousand years or a minute. Nothing happened. There were no events to mark the march of time. Time did not march. It, it stood always still. It was always the whirling machines that moved. And they moved nowhere. In spite of the fact that they moved faster. And when we have a couple descriptions that really show him as just a cog in the machine. Quote, he worked mechanically. When a small bobbin ran out, he used his left hand for a break, stopping the large bobbin at the same time with the summoned forefinger, catching the fraying end of twine. Also at the same time with his right hand, he caught the loose twine end of a small bobbin. These various acts with the hands were performed simultaneously and swiftly. Then they would come a flash of his hands as they looped the weaver's knot and released the bobkin. There was nothing different, difficult about the weaver's knots. He once boasted that he could tie them in his sleep. And for that matter, he sometimes did, toiling centuries long in a single night at tying the endless succession of weaver's knots. And later on, 
There had never been a time when he was not in an intimate relationship with machines. Machinery had almost bred into him. At any rate, he had been brought up on it. Twelve years before, there had been a small flirt of excitement in the loom room at this very mill. Johnny's mother had fainted. They stretched her on the floor in the midst of the shrieking machines. A couple of elderly women were called into the looms, and the foreman assisted. In the few minutes, there was one more soul in the loom room than had entered the doors, end quote. So he literally is born with the machines. It's, it's a bit maybe unrealistic that... I don't know, maybe working class women did often give birth in the factory floor. But it's just the symbolism of him being born amidst the machines. And of course, he's only 12. Uh, so we got a, a child labor uh, being a theme here. And just, we get these long descriptions of the various jobs he does and his life in the factories. And eventually he's just gives up on it. He turns his back on on this this life. He desires to do nothing, essentially. We're reminded of of Barnaby the Scrivener in the the Herman Melville tale, in which the character asserts that he, you know, he prefers not to. That's essentially where our character here ends up. Now the next story, South of Slot, which was published three years later in 1909, is a little bit different it's it's a little bit more fun it's also about the working class however but it's a little bit more fun it's a very striking tale on how our conditions and in our environment make us who we are and in this story a sociologist takes on this new persona to investigate the working conditions called south of the slot which is essentially like the working class community so he goes there to investigate them and he puts on this new persona so he is What's his name? Freddie Drummond. That's the name of this sociologist. And he's not a particularly good sociologist. He's not described as brilliant or anything, but he's, he's investigating working class conditions. But when he crosses the line, he becomes Bill Trotz, a working class man. And he, why does he want to write about this wor the working class? Um, it's not fully explain but he's somehow fascinated by just what their life was like and there's something in working class life that he wants so if in the apostate you have someone trying to eventually giving up on the working class life he is someone from a more privileged background who wants to experience this in a way quote before he rose to the surface from his first plunge into the underworld he discovered that he was a good actor and demonstrated the plasticity of his nature he was astonished at his own fluidity once having mastered the language and conquered numerous fastidious qualms, he found that he could flow into any nook of working class life and fit in so snugly as to feel comfortably at home. As he said in the preface to his second book, The Toiler, he endeavored really to know the working people, and the only way possible to achieve this was to work besides them to eat their food, to sleep in their beds, and be amused with their amusements, to think their thoughts and feel their feelings. He was not a deep thinker, he had no faith in the new theories. All his norms and criteria were conventional. His thesis on the French Revolution was noteworthy in Kyle's annals, not merely for its painstaking and voluminous accuracy, but for the fact that it was the driest, deadest, most formal, and most orthodox screed ever written on the subject. End quote. Well, he's basically a boring sociologist, a boring scholar, but he becomes something different when he goes south of the slot and takes on this new identity. He likes working class life because it allows him to be someone he's not. It, it, it liberates him. It's almost like a masquerade ball. You put on the mask and you can go wild and crazy. So he maintains these two lives for a while. 
And at the end, he rejects his life as a researcher and becomes a labor activist, even not just an observer, but a real labor activist. Optimistically, this shift from a conservative labor economist to a socialist agitator took labor. But it's more than that. It's somehow he experiences their life and he starts to sympathize with their experiences. And he likes being part of the working class. It's something he really enjoys doing. There's a lot of freedom he gets in becoming this new pers pers persona. And I'm reminded uh, of Martin Eden, which was written, I think, around this time. Yeah, this is about the same time as Martin Eden. And in Martin Eden, you have this conflict between do I stay working class and I forget the name of the woman. He had a working class sort of girlfriend. Um, and then he wanted to move up to the middle class for a much more cagey and stodgy life. And there's all this issue in Martin Eden, too, of, of him kind of class jumping and how that doesn't really get him to be an authentic, true writer. So it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I really like this tale. Um, it's, a, it's about social mobility, but it's a voluntary social mobility. There's nothing that makes him become working class. Um, it's just that there's something admirable in that life that he wanted to, to experience. So it's a fun story about the class divide. Next, we have the Chinago, 1909, same year. What to do about this story? Okay, well, I'll just give you the plot very quickly, and then let, we can kind of go in and talk about what to make of this. It, it's one of the more disturbing tales that I've looked at in this entire podcast. We have some Chinese laborers that are on trial for murder in the Pacific, on a Pacific island. I think it's, it's like in the French Polynesia somewhere. Tahiti, maybe. I don't know. Maybe if I read more closely, I would know. So this is part of the coolie trade that brought many East Asians to the Pacific Islands and to the Americas to work on plantations. This became really important part of the labor system here after, you know, like in the New World and the Americas after slavery ended. They needed new imported labor and they got these coolies. We're semi-free contractual workers. They would sign contracts. Now, that would they be fulfilled or not? Usually it wasn't clear, but um, they were certainly weren't treated as fully free people due to these contracts they signed. Um, so this guy, one of the Chinese workers was stabbed and there was like two stab wounds. And the guy who did it was Ah Cho, A-H-C-H-O-W. And, and, but there was like five people who witnessed it. So they were all put on trial for the murder. And one of them is Ah Cho, A-H-C-H-O. This is a big difference in Chinese, but the French don't, you know, they spell it very similarly. The judge deems, says, Ah chose to be executed. And the rest are going to get like different various months of, la of, of hard labor in like sent to Australia or something. Sent somewhere else for 20 years hard labor. Now, Acho, the, our, our, basically our point of view character here, he was hoping to work in the Pacific Islands, to work for a few years and then basically retire to a garden. This was his dream. And he often thinks about this dream. Now, when he realizes he's going to have to serve 20 years penalty, he's still pretty stoic about it and pretty accepting about it. He says, okay, so, you know, I'll come out after 20 years. I'll still have plenty of life left because he's like in his early 20s. I'll still be able to retire to the garden, you know, whatever, and I'll be happy there. 
Now, due to a mix-up, the mix-up on the name, he's taken out as 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 Acho, the one to be executed, and he's brought to it. And the guards they kind of make fun of him, and you know, he talks about like, you know, or don't I have to go to work? And he's like, no, no, you're gonna be executed, you know, and it won't, it won't be bad. It'll be really quick. It'll just tickle a little bit, and then you'll be dead. He's like, well, but I'm not the guy. You know, I'm not the one who's supposed to be be executed. And they take him to it, and he, he protests, and someone else says, well, I don't think this is the guy. One of the French people say, yeah, I don't know if it's the guy, but the, they finally decide, well, we can't slow down labor anymore. We have to execute someone. We have, you know, and this guy is as good as anyone else, so let's just do it. And the famous line here is, he's just a Chinago. I mean, one of these Chinese workers. And then he's executed, right? Now, everyone there seems to know that this is the wrong guy. That's what's so disturbing about it. Right? It's just that the indifference of the law in this system, right? You know, it's just someone has to be executed and it doesn't really matter who because these are interchangeable workers. There's, there's no guarantee of human rights certainly here. But I think what's most troubling for readers coming back on this story is not just that the French imperialists didn't care about a Chinese immigrant worker. You know, we kind of take that for granted. What's really disturbing here is how passive our character is. And I'm trying to find a passage here. Okay, when he first thinks he's going to get 20 years of hard labor as his punishment, he says, Acho philosophized and speculated about life and death. As for himself, he was not perturbed. 20 years was merely 20 years. By that much was his garden removed from him. That was all. He was young, and the patience of Asia was in his bones. He could wait those 20 years, and by the time the hearts of his blood would be assuaged, and he would be better fitted for the garden of calm delight. He thought of a name for it. He would call it the Garden of the Morning Calm. He had made happy all day by the thought, and he was inspired to devise a moral maxim on the virtues of patience, which maxim would be a great comfort. Hmm. So we have that. Now, later on, he learns he's going to be executed, and it's the same kind of passivity. Um, I'm trying to, again, find... This is like the second to last page. Okay, here. He allowed himself to be lashed to the vertical boards. So he's being put in the guillotine, and he's... You know, the images we have the guillotine is often like your head is down and you get the back. So your spinal cord is severed first. But for some reason, they're doing it up. So he's looking up at the blade coming down. So he's strapped in. He allowed himself to be lashed to the vertical board that was the size of his body. Schemmer drew one of the buckles tight, so tight that the straps cut into his flesh and, and hurt. But he did not complain. The hurt would not last long. He felt the board tilting over in the air towards the horizontal and closed his eyes. And in the moment, he caught the last glimpse of his garden of meditation and repose. It seemed to him that he sat in the garden. The cool wind was blowing and the bells in the several trees were, were tinkling softly. Also, birds were making sleepy noises. And from behind the high wall came the subdued sound of village life. And we imagine all the other workers who are watching this are just as passive and accepting of this and... They don't seem to care that much either who gets executed, as long as it's not them. Now, this 
is where a point where we can maybe accuse Jack London of a little bit of, of racism, presenting these Chinese workers as very passive and indifferent, even to their own countrymen. But to be honest, I, I don't know. I, I mean, there's this famous story about Lu Xun, uh, a Chinese writer of the so-called New Culture Movement, the May 4th Movement, the kind of the literary revolution of early 20th century China. You know, and he wrote a lot of really famous stories around 1917 to 1921, 1925. One of the most famous writers of the Chinese Renaissance. And he talked about a story. I think it was him. Yeah, he talked about a story in which during when the Japanese were he looked at a picture. I think it was when he was studying in Japan, he was shown this picture of these Chinese executed by Japanese during the Sino-Japanese War. Maybe it was the Franco or the Russo-Japanese War. I think it was the Russo-Japanese War, but some Chinese were being executed. And he talked about how the Chinese were just kind of watching indifferently as this man was being executed. And he wondered, like, why don't they stand up and resist at all? And th this was a Chinese writer saying this about um, the Chinese. So I don't know, I, and I was reminded of that when I was rereading the, the Chinago. Now, of course, there's a theme here about the futility of trying to reason with the police. Um, but in effect, Acho, our character, does convince them that he's the wrong person. But they don't care in the end. They just they just need to execute someone. And so it's, it's somewhat about the wheels of bureaucracy, too. But it's, it, this is one of those stories that's going to stick with you for a while if you read it. It may be one you even want to avoid if you're very sensitive to to themes of capital punishment. So next, uh, same year, 1909, we got a story called The Peace of Stake. It's, it's fairly long. It, it's one of his boxing stories, about 20 pages. It's a story of a boxer who's literally fighting for his life in the ring. Victory will mean a purse. V defeat will mean continued deprivation. I think he even bets the little money he has on himself. So he's kind of all in on this fight. He has no money. He's got a family back at home. Can't support them. And basically this fight is what he needs to, to survive. To keep Basically it's his paycheck. He has no money. So he can't even like buy dinner before the fight. He, and he, so he wants his piece of steak but he can't even afford it. So he, he's literally to his last penny. Um, he goes into fight without a proper meal and he loses. It's a very brutal match. It's described, most of the story is the description of the fight and just how brutal it is. It's really fighting to the last moment. We have these image of two working class men smashing each other's face in for a cash prize. And we're reminded very much of All Gold Canyon. It's, it's kind of the same theme as All Gold Canyon about two people who should have solidarity for one another and work together are put in a position due to the system of just beating on each other and killing each other for money because only one can win. There can only be one at the end, one winner. And this is a metaphor for the industrial system of working class people being torn apart, fighting against each other for profit. Um, you know, Jack London did write this essay called The Scab, which critiqued the way the capitalist system posed workers against one another in these brutal contests. So the scab, of course, is when workers are on strike, you bring in other workers who are more desperate to do the work for cheaper, right, uh, to break the strike. 
this is a, a synthesis of, of that theme in the ring. And the final image, he, he's lost the fight. What's his name? Tom King. Very basic working class name. You know, no food, hungry, beaten up, bloody, no money. Walks past bars, walks, you know, working class people with a little bit more money. He can't join them. He can only go home empty handed to his to his family. And he's crying at the end. The final scene is, is just the tears coming down his face. Pretty rough, pretty tough story to to read, but th that's that's what we got here. Here we got the the end of the story. King looked on apathetically while his seconds mopped the streaming water from him, drained his face, and prepared to him to leave the ring. He felt hungry. It was not the ordinary gnawing hungry kind, but a great faintness, a palpitation in the pit of the stomach that communicated itself to all his body. He remembered back into the fight to the moments when he had sandal swaying and tottering on the hairline balance of defeat. Ah, that piece of steak would have done it. He had lacked just that for the decisive blow and he lost. It was all because of a piece of steak. Later on, just on the next page, the end of the story, he had not a copper in his pocket and the two mile walk home seemed very long. He was certainly getting old. Crossing the domain, he sat down suddenly on a bench, unnerved by the thought of the missus sitting up for him, waiting to learn the outcome of the fight. That was harder than any knockout, but it seemed impossible to face. He felt weak and sore, and the pain of his smashed knuckles warmed him that even if he could find a job in the Navy, Navy yards, it would be a week before he could grip the pick handle or the shovel. The hunger palpitation in his pit of his stomach was sickening. His wretchedness overwhelmed him, and into his eye came an unwanted, unwanted moisture. He covered his face with his hands, and as he cried, he remembered Shoster Bill and how he had severed him that night in the long ago. Poor old Shoster Bill. He could understand now why Bill had cried in the dressing room. So it's a common experience of these working class boxers fighting for a purse, really for their survival. Uh, next, Mawkey. Uh, Mawkey, published in 1909. This is another story from his time on the snark. This is, I'll, I'll briefly go over it. It's the story of a Pacific Islander who's kind of a prince or a chief named Mawkey. And we get a very long description of him with all the, the tattoos and the piercings. And it, it's quite a vibrant description. His teeth are black. So there's a lot of racial language in this first part. He's described as black many times. Um, even his teeth are black because his mother, you know, dyed them black when he was young. I guess this was a common thing. I don't quite know the meaning of that in that culture, but uh, there it is. And eventually he's kidnapped and, and enslaved by whites. So remember, slavery was alive and well in the late 19th and early 20th century Pacific. Um, partially it sues contract labor, but other times people were just kind of taken in and forced to sign these contracts and, and enslaved. And then eventually he, he struggles to escape and he does. So it, it might be a metaphor for, for, for socialism of, of, of the underclass achieving their freedom, their independence. But it, it, it's, a, it's a rather happy tale because at the end, Malky does get his freedom and is able to live a, 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 a happy life, 
gain his gain his weight back. He's no longer a small, malnourished worker. He's got women and consumer goods and all that. So he's he's restored to his position of authority in his homeland with freedom and money and prosperity. However, the heart of the story really is the experience of being a slave um, to the whites in the, in the Pacific. And the resentment these people felt for being put in this situation. Quote, Malky did not like the plantation. He hated work and he was the son of a chief. Furthermore, it was 10 years since he had been stolen from Port Adams by Fanfo and he was homesick. He was even homesick for the slavery under Fanfo. So he ran away. He struck back at the bush with the idea of working southward to the beach and stealing a canoe in which to go home to Port Adams. But the fever got him and he was captured and brought back more dead than alive. End quote. I mean, the important thing here, and here's the difference between this and like the Chinago, is he's always resisting. Maki is in constant rebellion against his situation as a slave until he finally achieves it. Other characters who are much more passive fail. But, but he succeeds because of his embrace of, of resistance and this insistence on freedom. And then the final story we'll look at in uh, today is Kalu the leper. Now this is based on a real historical incident in Hawaii. So the background of this story, again, it's a real event and even the, the story called Kulau the, the leper is based, I mean, the actual event is called the Kulau Rebellion or sometimes the Leper War, um, which actually was the resistance of, of a colony of lepers in Hawaii. So not, leprosy apparently was brought in, at least in the story, it's described as leprosy was being brought in by Chinese workers into Hawaii. So another negative consequence of, of the, of, bringing these Pacific Islands into the global capitalist uh, colonial economy. But in order to basically stop the spread of leprosy, these Hawaiian lepers were, were put on a separate island, right? But then they, they basically started fighting back against, um, you know, being abandoned there to die. Um, and that's how the story starts. It's, quote, we, be, because we are sick, they take away our liberty. We have obeyed the laws, we have done no wrong, and yet they would put us in prison. Molokai is a prison. That you know. New Lee there, his sister, was sent to Molokai years ago. She has, not been, she has not seen her since, nor will he ever see her. She must stay there until she dies. This is not her will. It is not New Lee's will. It is the will of the white men who rule the land. And who are these white men? Right. So it's resistance against this, this physical relocation of, of these lepers. And... I'm just looking at Wikipedia here. Uh, apparently three of the Americans were killed um, by these, these lepers. Um, and that's, that's mostly what the story is about. It's, it's just a description of this event. So it's, it's kind of historical fiction. Most, mostly it's just a description of the battle and the fighting that broke out as these, this leper colony was, was, was attempted to be removed to, to this island. But here we have an example of successful resistance against relocation and isolation. Now, this, this is a common theme we see again and again in 20th century history is how um, concentration camps were used to isolate people who are politically um, tainted in some way, 
Uh, we they were used in in African colonies during the suppression of of those societies during the colonialism, and then of course they were used in World War II. Uh, used in various authoritarian states throughout 20th century history. This was a real tool of state power, was relocating, isolating, and separating populations that were somewhat deemed dangerous or problematic. In this case, you have this leper colony put in that situation, or the lepers of Hawaii were seen as a threat and must be moved and isolated. And we do this, we still do this, of course. We, the United States is the jailiest country on, on the planet. More people in jail per capita in the United States than anywhere else. Um, we have asylums, we have uh, hospitals, and all these other institutions that Michel Foucault writes about in his work that, that serve to isolate and bra break people off. We have um, segregated cities, we have the whole urban crisis and how that led to segregation in our cities. So we still do this. We have different technologies for doing it. But here we have an example of somewhat effective resistance to this process. So I think it's a historical event that maybe we should go back to and study and, and look at because it seems to have something to teach us about about the, just the morality of of segregating and separating big chunks of our population based on some of their physical characteristics or in this case an, an illness that wasn't their fault right of course the disease was brought in due to the greed and venality of of the of the capitalists uh, who who rose to dominance in in Hawaii so good stories here. I, I think they're, they're a nice mixture. It's, you know, the Klondike stories, although they're really wonderful and vivid, you know, they're, they're kind of all the same set of themes. We get a lot more diversity in, in these stories. Um, but we're not quite done. We still have six more to look at, which we'll take up in the next episode. And then we'll be done with Jack London. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you read these stories, if, if you know anything more about these, please uh, leave your comments and in, in you know, share your thoughts and I'll, I'll gladly address them and talk about them. Uh, you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, and thank you once again for, for listening. I hope you're enjoying this look at the works of, of Jack London. Y'en avait un autre parmi eux qui a passé pour un quiqueux. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant pleine face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Glendike.